Well, today's message is very simply, what kind of church does Jesus prefer? Now, I'm going to ask you know a few questions. You can respond any way you want to. But, you know, what sort of church does he like? Uh, would it be Baptist? Uh, would he prefer a Methodist church? Or would he prefer a Catholic church? Or would he prefer a uh, Pentecostal church? I can just picture Jesus jumping out up and down in a Pentecostal church. Or would he prefer an Episcopal church? Or how about a non-denominational church? Or how about a Lutheran church? Then we'd have to say, which variety? Because, you know, we're like every other denomination. We seem to splinter it ourselves. Or maybe we should ask ourselves, does he prefer country churches? You know, those out in the middle of nowhere, those little country churches. Or does he prefer these gigantic mega churches, you know, where there are 20,000, 30,000 people gathered in a building on the weekend? Or what about house churches, where you just, in your house, in the living room, you get a bunch of people together? I think, Ed, you guys, you guys were doing that for a while during COVID. Uh, or what about city churches? A lot of city churches. Or what about uh, multi-site churches? Oh, we could say like praise and worship and restore. That's kind of multi-site. Or what about independent churches? They have no affiliation with anybody. They just spring up and they do church. Or what about new churches? Oh, new churches are really cool. I've been fortunate to pastor some of them already. Or what about old churches? I saw some really neat pictures of what they've done with Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Belvedere the other day of this new dynamite. I wrote him a really nice note. I said, I'm so pleased to see that God is being glorified even in that old Lutheran church. Really cool. Or does Jesus prefer large buildings? You know, where you have to walk about a mile to get a cup of coffee and then find your seat. I've been in churches kind of like that already. Or about, how about storefronts? Like restore. Is this the kind of church Jesus prefers? Or what about meeting in an apartment someplace? Or what about, well, I've actually preached in a hole in the ground in Nigeria. You actually walk down the dirt. They had stakes and they had some palm leaves, but you're down in the ground. How about that kind of church? Or what about a cathedral? I've been in a number of cathedrals. Uh, which one does he really like? Well, thankfully, uh, we're not left to figure out what it is that he likes. All we need to do is read Revelation chapter 2 and 3, and we can pretty much figure out what kind of church Jesus likes. Now, we're going to see a map again on the screen, and you recognize this, but when we survey these seven churches here in Asia Minor, we discovered that nothing I listed is mentioned about any of those seven churches. And so when Jesus looks, he's not studying the outside. He's looking inside to see what kind of faith it's kind of like he walks by and kind of lifts up the top of the church, looks at it and says, is there any faith in this place? So he's looking for uh, growing faith. He's looking for fervent love. He's looking for abiding hope. And he wants churches that are motivated by love, love not only for one another. Hopefully you all love each other this morning. You're not sit there staring daggers at each other, uh, but also who love the community in which they happen to find themselves plopped. Uh, and these are churches that are founded on the truth. We talk about the Word of God. Uh, they're strong under pressure. It doesn't make much difference what happens on the outside. They all kind of hunker down and say, we can weather this storm. And they're just absolutely unashamed of the name of Jesus. Who do you believe in? Oh, we believe in, uh, you know, that far away. No, we believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. 
Now, of the seven churches we've looked at in this series, only Smyrna, you see where Smyrna is up there in the map? Only Smyrna and Philadelphia received no condemnation. The rest of these, you know, as John wrote, moved by the Spirit, these other churches all had problems. So, and it's not coincidental that both were facing strong opposition in the places where they existed. But sometimes, you know, hard times actually create strong churches. Um, and, and that's the, what, the kind of churches that we, we're going to take a look at. Um, uh, especially when a church refuses to compromise the gospel. And maybe you've been a member of a church like that where you, you, you discovered pretty early, this might be different where, than where I used to go, but by golly, they stand on the gospel. They stand on the gospel. Now, what I read to you before from Romans, or not Romans, Revelation, uh, records the letter to the church at Philadelphia, which is about 35 miles southeast of Sardis. Uh, because it was located near fault lines, earthquakes were part of the history of that church. Now, this was the city of brotherly love. Now, I think you've already heard that before. Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. Well, that's because the Greek word for Philadelphia is what? Philia Delphia, uh, the city of brotherly love. Uh, and they were kind of a mission city, in a way, uh, sought to introduce Greek culture to the rest of the area. But they were built on a mountain pass uh, in between a couple of mountain ranges, and it was served really as a kind of a doorway into what we would call Asia Minor. And it was the youngest and the smallest of the seven churches. And that's part of the reason I also moved it to the end, because we are a small church compared to many other churches. And even though it was small in size, our Lord opened a huge door for this congregation. And I'm so very thankful. We've got a huge door. Uh, and God has done this because we found out a couple of times already. We just rolled that big sucker up, and we had the cam truck back in here, and we have put groceries in for fifty some families. Now, beyond that open door, we've also got a smaller door. We did it the same way, and we've got this door out front, which really looks nice. It's an open door into our community. Now, even though this church was small in size, kind of like us, our Lord. Uh, opens up things for this place. And so this is a church that Jesus really gives a thumbs up to. So as we study, I want you to think about, and I'll try to refer back to how this might apply to this place that we call Restore. Now, here's the first thing I want to tell you, and this is that Christ himself opens the doors. Now, we may lift these doors, we may put in these doors and make it look nice, but it's Jesus who opens the doors. Uh, sometimes people ask, how can I know when God has opened a door? Well, there are a lot of ways to answer that question. The simplest is, you might not know until you've gone through the door. That's how you know when God has opened up a door. Uh, my experience is sometimes the door is obvious, and you just walk through it or you run through it, or sometimes you get shoved through the door. Um, and it seems sometimes that God really shows us a big picture in advance, and the open door is usually pushed slightly open, and the next thing you know, you're on the other side of it. And probably a lot of you have been facing doors you thought maybe were closed and you were hoping to open. I think about Bo, for example. You know, getting that young lady out of Bolivia, you know, got to get that open door. And the door may be open wider than you think. And when you get there and think, man, we got all this hassle to deal with, God says, come on, Bo, 
we can handle this. We're, we're good at doors. Um, see, one may open and it may close. That's okay. Another may open. That's okay, too, if you've got a bunch of doors. We just have to wait for the door to open, and that's also okay. Because uh, Jesus, guess what? He's sovereign over all doors. Whatever door you're looking at, Jesus is king over that door. Now, it was uh, about a month or two ago, ago, I got an email from a friend in the former congregation I, I pastored. The subject line was this, where do I fit in? Where do I fit in? And he wrote just one sentence, and the sentence was this, I just can't comprehend what God is doing. Now, if, what, if, I'm not going to read the rest of his, his email, but now he had been dealt a pretty crushing blow by some people that he thought were really good friends of his in and out of a church. There was nothing evil that he was talking about. There wasn't anything necessarily underhanded. It was just a decision where he found himself a little bit disheartened, discouraged, and losing a couple of people that he thought were truly his friends. Now, guess what? That's part of the faith journey, isn't it? That's what he was going through. Sometimes doors close. They close with people. They close in circumstances. So we bow down before the Lord who not only opens the doors that no man can shut and no man can open. Jesus is the doorkeeper. Here's the second thing we need to understand, and that's that Jesus honors faith and not strength. Faith and not strength. Verse 8 says, I know that you have little strength. Now, I wouldn't embarrass anybody here this morning and say, if you have a really powerful faith, raise your hand. I'm not going to do that to you. Uh, you know, if I ask you, how many of you have a really little, weak, namby-pamby faith? I'm not going to do that to you. You all kind of probably have an estimation about the kind of faith you possibly have. Now, some small churches, and some small churches just like Restore, think that there's very little that they can do for the Lord. You know, we're small in numbers. We don't even take an offering, for heaven's sakes. <laughs> and you wonder, how can we possibly exist in this place? You know, oh, woe is us. We're just going to hunker down with this small little group and be happy clappy. Uh, but that's all a matter of perspective, how you, how you look at that. I and mean, the church in Philadelphia was not a whole lot different than the church here in Hollister called Restore. And we can assume they did not have much money. We can probably assume that they had uh, not very many, let's say, influential people in the community. It was just a bunch of just good old folks who trusted in Jesus and had faith in what Jesus was going to do. So this is, I think, a lesson for all of us. Um, I'll be honest enough with you to say I'm probably not as wise or eloquent as many other pastors. Uh, I may not have the money or the influence that some other people have. You might be able to say the same thing. Some of you may say, well, I'm not nearly as educated or as well-connected or as good-looking as other people. But to whatever excuse you have, I'm going, to, I'm going to give you the closing door on that. But you can trust the Lord just as well as anybody else. I don't care if you're not as good-looking, you don't have as much money, you don't have the biggest house. I don't care where you live. You can still trust the Lord as much as anybody else can. So what is it that God honors? Well, faith. Faith. What's he looking for? Faith. How much faith? Porquito. Not much. A little about. Mustard seed stuff. You don't know that. Uh, not the faith of many years and deep knowledge. I mean, 
Some of you have been a person who's known Jesus for a long time, like me. Some of you have only known Jesus for a short time. And faith is faith. He honors the simple faith of what? A child. A child. Now, I hope you notice that there are two wonderful things Jesus says about the church. He said, you have kept my name, or you, you kept my word, you have not denied my name. Now, the first involves holding fast to Jesus' words. We are a church of the Bible. Uh, the second one means you're not embarrassed by that. I mean, I've had people, when they see me someplace and have a Bible open, they, they, sometimes it's kind of facetious, sometimes I just say, so you, do you believe that stuff? I said, well, there's a couple, of, I'm going to answer your question, but I'm going to ask you a question. Uh, the answer to your question is, yes. The, qu- the more important question to me is, do you? <laughs> and there are some people who are like, I'm not really that interested in it. I mean, I remember counseling a couple one time in my very first church, and uh, when I was taking down basic information, what's your name? Mary Jones, what's your name? Uh, Bob Smith, where do you live? One, Mary, one, two, three, Maine. Where do you live? One, two, three, Maine. And I sat there and I thought, hmm, you guys live in the same place. <laughs> and the guy looked at me and says, what's the matter with that? And uh, I said, well, would you like a little lesson in what maybe could be the matter with, of that? And uh, he just looked at me and said, I got a Bible pass. And I turned around and I put it over. He looked at it. He turned it back and he shoved the, the Bible across the table. And he says, you need to get with it. And I said, you need to get gone. And I said, you go wait outside. I'm going to talk to Mary for a while. Now, some people go, oh, come on, Pastor, just marry him. I'm going to just cut it out. Just be nice to people. If I ever be, yeah, people tell me I should be nicer. Yeah, look at that grin. Yeah, she, she, she knows that. Yeah. Uh, and I'm just saying some people are kind of embarrassed by their faith. They know they have it, but they don't really like to share it much. They kind of follow Jesus but they kind of keep it close to the vest, close to themselves. They don't rock the boat. They don't cause any problems. They don't stir up any, any, any trouble. And I just, I've just not been able to do that very well in my life. Let me give you an illustration of some people who, who did upset everybody. Their names were Paul and Silas. And Paul and Silas, this is from Acts chapter 17, somewhere in Acts 17. Uh, they came to the town called Thessalonica. And their opponents tried to have them arrested. And this is, this is what they said. This is why they wanted them arrested. These people have come and turned the world upside down here. <laughs> and I'm thinking, is that an insult? No, that's not an insult. I, would anybody say that about you? Would they say that about me? Maybe. See, this meant it, they meant it as an accusation but really it was a compliment. I mean, what a great thing to be said about you, that wherever you went, you kind of turned the world or that community or that small group upside down and caused people to rethink things. This will come as no surprise, perhaps, to most of you. Satan hates gospel preaching. He hates the preaching of the gospel. I'm going to take a step forward. He also hates gospel preachers. Let a person decide that he's going to stand up for Jesus. Let him teach the whole counsel of God. Let him firmly but kindly declare the saving good news of Jesus Christ. And guess what? You can make enemies inside and outside the church. 
sadly, not all of them are outside the church. Uh, some of the first fiercest critics I've actually had, and I've been a pastor for 38, 39 years now, are people who've listened to me preach Sunday after Sunday. And we kind of live in a day and age when people, even good church people, would prefer if their pastor or their church would kind of trim the sails a little bit and uh, not offend too many people because, after all, the more people we have in church, the more money comes into the collection plate. Uh, and, you know, we, we want to be known as good people. We want to know, be known as good neighbors. Uh, we want to be friendly folks, and we want to be a safe haven. So come on, dampen it down a little bit. I can't do it. I, I mean, I, I'm sorry. That, that'd be, somebody told me that. I just got. I'm going to ratchet it up a little bit more. I mean, who would who would object to that kind of stuff? Well, not me. But there's a fine line between between wanting to reach the community, and I would say we want to reach the community. Now we're doing that through Cam. Can we reach those people for Jesus too? Yes, we can. But there's a fine line between wanting to reach this community and not telling them the truth about God. See, the gospel is good news, but before it's good news, and unless we tell them the bad news, they're not going to be understanding the good news. Let me give you an example. Some of you may be familiar with the name Francis Schaeffer. Uh, Francis Schaeffer is a, uh, uh, a Christian author and theologian, and he was asked one time what he would do if he was riding on a train and only had one hour to share the gospel with the person sitting next to him. And he said, I would spend 45 minutes... Uh, testifying about sin, righteousness, and judgment, and I'd spend the last 15 minutes talking about the gospel. I found that kind of enlightening. He'd start with the bad news first and lead up to the good news. See, the, the, the people who lived in Philadelphia, I think, would appreciate that. I mean, they cared enough about the truth that they were willing to make enemies. Uh, this is the mark of their faithfulness to Christ. Now, I'm not saying, okay, folks, I'm here this morning today. We've got to start making some enemies in this community. No, we don't need to make enemies in this community. The enemies of Jesus will find you sooner or later. They will. Here's the third thing we need to think about. We will be vindicated. Verse 9, I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan. Maybe you remember that phrase from a couple of churches back. I think it was the churches of Smyrna and Thyatira. We had Jezebel on the throne and everything. He says, the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Now, here, this synagogue of Satan refers to the Jews that were back, or that were actually in their community here in Philadelphia, who persecuted the early believers. And they saw Jesus as a threat to their way of life. Uh, they hated Jesus, and they hated people who followed Jesus. But Jesus said, those people are just a bunch of liars. And the day will come when all of those enemies will bow down and confess that Jesus is Lord. So that's why we don't need to be intimidated by people who don't believe in Jesus. I remember how many years ago it was. I was in Almaty in Kazakhstan, Central Asia. And in a conference, we actually were in an art gallery that had... a uh, a big area, and it was a Muslim art gallery, how a bunch of Christians uh, led by three Lutheran pastors could be in a Muslim art gallery. And uh, one of the guys 
He says, I want to share a Bible passage with you that is very important to me. And, uh, and he, he, he talked about Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 to 11, where it says that someday every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That Bible passage got a standing ovation. Nine hundred people stood up and clapped and applauded. And I thought, wow, i got to start inserting that Bible passage in my sermons. <laughs> and it, I, I thought that was really cool. And afterwards, we were out in the lobby and we were talking to people. We said, all of these people that come from all different places, including a young man named Kareel, who I met, who came because the Spirit had told him he needed to come see me. And he had been beaten up back in Uzbekistan for preaching the gospel in a park. They'd throw him in jail. He'd get out. He'd go right back to the park again. Got beaten up. Get thrown. So he was there to be encouraged. And when you talk to people like that, you know, they say, look, being a Christian is not the easiest thing in the world. And I said, so are you going to head back and go back to the park? And he says, yes. Now, there's a part of me that says, you're nuts. But, see, he understood something. And every time I hear that Bible passage, I just think, man, the power of this man's faith, Coreal. I mean, if you ever think, remember that name every once in a while. I don't know what's ever happened to him. not heard from him. But in the judgment day, those who have no use for Jesus or for Christians are going to see how wrong they were in this world. Now, some of you know I coached junior high, high school, and college basketball for, I think, 18 years. I tried to tell my players over and over again, play as hard as you can when the game is over, then look up at the scoreboard and see who wins. And John kind of says that to the church in Philadelphia. Uh, Only he adds, play hard even when you think you're behind, because when the game's over, you're going to be on the winning team. Now, here's the fourth thing we want to remember. We're going to be protected. This is not an easy life to live as Christians. But we're going to be protected. Verse 10, since you've kept my command to endure patiently, I'll also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. A lot of us like to have all of our problems taken care of right now. But Jesus is kind of saying, patience, my friend. Wait patiently. How many of you have been waiting patiently for, for God to do something for you? Okay, a few of you. You've been praying those things? Sure. Yeah, wait patiently. I'll keep you from that hour of tri- trial that is going on, coming upon the whole world. Now, sometimes you just have to endure patiently. I mean, spiritual warfare is not all roses and bunny rabbits. Uh, sometimes it means not giving up when you feel like quitting. Uh, that's why the Lord makes this promise here. He says, because you've been faithful to me... I will keep you during those times of trial. I'll still be there with you. Well, consider some obligations here. Let's look at a couple more verses. Uh, consider our obligation here in verse 11. Uh, he says, I'm coming soon, and he says, hold on. That's, man, you want to write something down today, just write down hold on and figure out how you can do that the rest of the day. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take away your crown. Now, he even said, I'm coming soon. And I wonder how many of us think, he's coming soon. Well, i got to tell you, he's coming sooner than I thought back when I was in grade school in the 1950s. It's getting closer. And this text tells us to do two things while we wait for the return of Jesus, whenever that may be. One of them is wait. (laughs) Wait for his return. 
And while you're waiting for his return, whenever that may be, I've often prayed, if you do it in the middle of my sermon, Lord, I would thank you very much. I wouldn't have to finish this. But wait for his return. And in the meantime, while you're waiting, overcome by faith. Verses 12 and 13. To him who overcomes, I'll make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. I'll write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I'll also write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So this challenge to overcome is something that you and I face each and every day. I don't watch a whole lot of television. If I tape anything, I tape Hogan's Heroes. Um, I'll watch sports and sometimes I'll do that. Uh, but I happened to turn on TV one night. It's been a couple of months back, I think, when I was going to work on these messages. And I don't even know what the show was, but they had an interview in which the host had a bunch of people in an audience. And he was asking them uh, to describe a time when they met a really big challenge and responded to it in faith. I thought, well, I'm kind of interested in that. Well, most of, the, most of them named big events like facing surgery or facing cancer or uh, facing the loss of a job and what that would mean in their family or they were dealing with a broken marriage. Now, I don't doubt that, that uh, those events call us to live by faith. I, I'm not doubting that at all. But what I began to wonder is if we're not missing some of the truly great challenges that you and I face each and every day. I wrote a bunch down. Here's a big jump. I will get out of my bed today. For some people, that's a challenge. I will go to work even though I hate my job. Maybe some of you go been there. Uh, I see the nod over here. I will be kind instead of rude today. I will forgive when it would be easier to get even. I will not lose my temper with my kids or my wife today. See, that's where overcomers are made in in the reality of life. I mean, it's easy to read Revelation chapter 2 and 3 and imagine that these overcomers were some members of some special forces branch of Christianity that lived up on a higher plane than you and I, lowly people. It's not so. We're all called to be overcomers in every single day because we all have a lot of stuff to overcome. I wrote, I wrote a list of stuff I need to overcome all the time. And don't, don't dwell too many on one of them or any of them. But <laughs> Frustrations. Disagreeable people. Difficult situations, unexpected setbacks, cranky critics, internal discouragement. I twisted my back the other day, so I wrote chronic pain because it hurts when I move in the wrong place. Some of you know exactly what to do. Friends who aren't very friendly. Failures known only to me. Now, you can add whatever you want to add to that list. There's, all I'm saying is you can always find a reason to quit. You can always find a reason to give up. There's always plenty of excuses if you want them. 
But to those people who persevere, who hang in there, who stick to it, uh, who will not give up even when they feel like it, and when everyone else says, you ought to hang it up, walk away from this mess, to those people, uh, those brave souls who keep on keeping on, Jesus has two incredible promises. And that's where we're going to end up today. Two incredible promises for people who hang in there by faith no matter what happens in life. Here's the first one. We will be safe and secure. That's one of God's big promises. He promises that, you will, that they will be pillars in God's temple and they'll never leave God's presence. Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. That's what the Bible says. Uh, those words meant a great deal to people in Philadelphia uh, because their city had been destroyed several times by earthquakes and still they realized God was hanging in with them even during a disaster like that. But see, those people who trust in Jesus are safe and secure forever. Jesus said, they may not like you very much in Philadelphia. They may not like you very much in Hollister. They may not like you very much in what you do at Restore or Praise, you name whatever church you want to plug in there. But you've always got a home with me in heaven. I will make you a pillar in my temple. Now, I've always thought about that. You know, sometimes there are pillars that hold the church up, and other times there are caterpillars who just crawl in and out. That's paraphrasing scripture. But I'll make you a pillar in my temple so that you will be close to me forever. You know, so the question is, do you want to be a pillar or a caterpillar? Well, here's his second promise. We will be named and claimed. See, the power to name is the power of ownership. I remember when we, our first child was born, what are we going to name him? Oh, we got all kinds of kinds of things. We've suggested a couple names. I think we, we talked about Christopher at one time. And my grandma said, oh, no, they'll always call him Chrissy. That's why his name is Eric. <laughs> and then when you come to the second one, Teresa. Well, is that going to be a T-E-R? Is that going to be a T-H-E-R? <laughs> yeah, and we've always got, you know, we're, we're named and claimed. So these are our kids. I mean, who are your kids? Eric and Terry. And... You know, Terry being a single mom and we've got a grandson, we were, in the, we were there in the process, what are we going to name him? And we chose Joshua. And, and it's not, this is our grandson, Josh, or little Joshy boy as I call him. We're named and claimed. We're, God redeemed us. He named us. He calls us by name. I mean, we can go all the way back to baptism when God called you by name. Called you. Nancy K. Miller, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, Holy. You were named and claimed. You are now mine forever. And see, all the old names someday aren't going to make any difference. Becky, I got news for you someday. Someday, nobody's going to care about doctor in front of your name. I can tell you that because they don't care the fact that I got one. <laughs> I mean, those names aren't going to matter anymore. You get to heaven. Oh, who are you? Well, I'm doctor. <laughs> No. Uh, lawyer it's not going to make any difference someday pharmacist politician coach chiropractor um, athlete rich man uh, most influential uh, woman uh, inmate convict felon um, failure hated abandoned humiliated unappreciated liar adulterer we go on and on those names won't make any difference if you had to carry those names around in this world in that great day, uh, the blood of Jesus literally washes every tag that had been attached to you 
through this world. Imagine that, washed in the blood of Jesus. Good names won't matter, and bad names won't be remembered. We're all going to stand on the same ground someday, and that's called saved, redeemed, renewed, and renamed by our Lord. Now, last week I, I flashed money and got you guys all disturbed because you followed no matter where I held it. I'm not doing money today, but I got one of these. Some of you got one of these, too. It's called a passport. Like some of you, like I said, you've got a passport, and uh, it identifies me. You know, open up that page, you see that beautiful, handsome guy. Oh, that's me. Okay. I thought I had somebody else's passport there for a moment. But it got a picture of me. It identifies uh, who I am. It identifies me as a citizen of the United States of America. But as I start flipping through it, I've also uh, got visas. So not only does it tell me where I came from, but it also tells me where I can go. And it tells me I can go to India. It tells me I can go to Nigeria. It tells me I can go to Kazakhstan. It tells me I can go to Thailand and any of the other number of places that I've been privileged to go for God all over these worlds. Now, all of us who claim the name of Jesus today have a passport that's stamped citizen of heaven. That's you. Bo, citizen of heaven. Got nothing to do with Bolivia. Sarah's going to figure that out. She already knows that, though. She already knows she's a citizen of heaven. And you all got a visa that guarantees you permanent entrance into the kingdom of God. No one can say you've got no right to be there. Uh, We enter by the blood of Jesus and in his name and we find our place in that heavenly city. Somebody says, what are you going to do when you get to the pearly gates and somebody stand there and... Peter says, why should I let you in? It's Jesus said, why should I let you in? You know what my response is? You have to. <laughs> That's my response. You have to do it. What do you mean you have to? Hey, I believe in Jesus Christ. That's his promise. Here, I'm here. See, we enter by the blood of Jesus and in his name. Now, the world takes Christians for granted, sometimes sees no value in us. A lot of people don't see any value in church. But I'm going to tell you and reassure all of you today, God honors his faithful servants. Now, we may have no security down here. Instead, we got earth, we got heavenly security, and it's a pretty good deal. See, if you want eternal security, uh, you can find it only in Jesus. Because one day, we'll all have a brand new name, and we'll be living in a city that cannot be shaken or taken away from us. And as the book of Revelation says, would tell us, he that has ears to hear, let him hear.